can't start this thing dry. We need some happy music. Ho, 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 ho! That's right, Cavs fans. What a victory over the Milwaukee Bucks. Can I get some joy, Stephen A? <laughs> oh, I share your feelings. What about the final box score? Anyone seen Chris Middleton? <laughs> Are you telling me there are still people out there as early as earlier this evening saying that this Cavalier team was not appreciably different from last year? <laughs> Oh, goddamn. That felt good. Cleveland Cavalier basketball in full swing with the most impressive victory of this season. A 40-point end-to-end ass-kicking of the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, let's get this out of the way right away because I'm not going to dwell on it. I'll acknowledge it. There's no Giannis. That changes a lot of things. And with two games on the horizon, I probably shouldn't get out ahead of myself. But, I mean, come on. Who are we talking to? I am trying to remove my ribs right now. Today is about joy. Today is about a national platform. Today, a humble, humorous man from a relatively anonymous Midwest college who shaped like a refrigerator box walked onto the court in Cleveland and hung 33 points on the Milwaukee Bucks, a team once praised for their defense. And in doing so, he shot a blistering 93% from the floor, 13 of 14. He did something historical by his own standards. He made his first 10 shots. He finished 13 of 14 from the floor. Now, it should be no surprise to you that this was George Yang's single best game of his NBA career. And while he didn't deserve that belch being in the middle of a podcast, my inability to be a classy podcaster should remind you the perfection is very difficult to attain. And yet George came just one field goal attempt away from giving us a perfect evening. George made his first 10 shots of the evening without a miss. He did not miss a single shot in the first half, did not miss a single shot in the third quarter, and then deep into the fourth, George finally missed. But he rallied with multiple makes after that, closed out the game with three consecutive baskets, and what do you know, a career high for Nyang. 33 points tops his previous high of 24, a performance which came in an overtime game against the LA Clippers back in 2019. This was his first 30-point outing, and in doing so, he achieved something that has never before been done in NBA history. You may ask yourself, has anyone shot so prolifically from outside on such a high percentage. And what I would say to you is this. There is not a single man who has taken the amount of shots George took tonight, 14 or more, that has made them at a 90% clip and contributed at least five three-pointers. George is alone in that feat. Now, that is a very specific set of circumstances I gave you. More than 90%, more than 14 attempts, and more than five threes. Okay, I get it. That's a pretty hand-picked criteria. There are other people who have done very impressive things. Torian Prince, for example. He had a 35-point game in which he went a perfect 8-for-8 from outside the arc, and he finished 12-for-13 from the floor. So yes, that's probably a more impressive statistical feat, but I will say this, he missed a free throw. (laughs) Come on, man! That's the easiest shot of them all. Advantage George Yang. 
So outside of maybe that one performance by Tori and Prince, nobody has ever outscorched Yang on such an efficient outing, an exhibition of outside snipery. That was a super loud gunshot, but bang, bang. Now, George is going to carry the evening, but it, it should exhibit to you how truly transcendent this George outing was, that he could usurp the opening of this podcast away from Donovan Mitchell, who chipped in 31 points, seven assists, five boards, was incredible in and of his own right. I mean, we came out of the gates absolutely blazing. The Cavaliers opened up a 22-2 run in which Donovan Mitchell had 12 points to begin this game within the first four minutes. He knocked down a couple triples. He only missed one of his first six shots. He was thriving while the Cavaliers were rolling it seemed like Donovan Mitchell took it personally that early in that game, we saw a lot of possessions where the Bucks tried to throw their rookie, Andre Jackson Jr., onto Donovan Mitchell and Donovan Mitchell cooks. Step back threes, little push-offs, little drives, Euro steps through the lane, swooping around, throwing in layups, odd angle shots. And in doing so, it wasn't just Donovan Mitchell because the Cavaliers got some highlight moments in this game of particular note. Did anybody notice in the first quarter, Isaac Okoro, who opened the game three for three on multiple drives to the rim, Isaac Okoro backed down Brooke Lopez and put a shot over him with some deft touch at the rim. Now, honestly, I felt good when I found out Giannis was out. Of course, I'll take a win any way we can get it. And with three games against these Bucks, I don't give a shit if they were shorthanded. Let's not forget, we have two studs sitting on the bench, one with a rubber band on his jaw or some shit like that who's drinking blended up rigatoni, according to the announcers on the game tonight, and the other guy who's got fragments in his knee had to be cleared out, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear about being shorthanded. This Cavalier team has dealt with it, and if we got to win because Giannis misses his second game of the season, fuck him. Fuck him. Now, I have a hard time believing, even with Giannis, that they win this game if anybody performs anywhere to the level that they did tonight, or if the officiating is somewhat similar. That was one of the least inspired defensive performances I've ever seen. And they seemed set on being bailed out by the refs from the moment the opening tip happened. Chris Middleton whining. Dame Lillard working the refs. Brooke Lopez, that man had the nerve to complain after committing three consecutive offensive fouls, two of which went uncalled. And then, to top it off, the coach decided to challenge it. That might be the single stupidest challenge I've seen anyone use all year. And I've seen JB use some terrible challenges along the way, ones that we had no chance of winning. And I have absolutely no idea what to attribute this to. Obviously, there's multiple things you could point to. Did Mike Brown's lobbying about bullshit whistles for Dame Lillard, did it carry over? to tonight, being that this was a national showcase game. Was it simply that? On a national game, they didn't want it marred by whistles? I mean, I'm pitching out all sorts of conspiracy theories. Maybe we just got a favorable whistle, but I've watched every single Cavs game this season. I have never seen them allow so much contact when it's our role players faced off against big-name guys. Damian Lillard, Chris Middleton. Isaac Okoro was getting the benefit of the doubt against Dame Lillard. Dean Wade was getting the benefit of the doubt against Chris Middleton. When does that happen? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm happy, because fuck them. Fuck them. And yet tonight, those guys 
were all over the place with their defensive efforts. Just a truly fantastic evening from the Cavalier role players. After just kicking the doors off and running up that 20-point lead in four minutes, we started to slow down. When Karras got into the game, the pace significantly slowed. I didn't think his first shift was particularly good. And clearly, JB agreed with that. Because for the first night in many nights, we saw Craig Porter Jr. in the first half. He got in at the beginning of the second quarter. Now, sure, we still had a double-digit lead then, playing with house money to some degree, but regardless of how he got there, whether it was because Karras's bad shooting was forcing him to go to a different look to make sure that we didn't blow this giant lead that we accumulated in the first quarter, it got Craig Porter Jr. in the game, and the rest of the second quarter was just, just <laughs> magical. They held the Bucks to 19 points. In the second quarter. And at halftime, the Cavaliers, they dominated fast break points, 22 to 2. They dominated points in the paint. They doubled up the Bucks with 32 points in the paint. And they dominated the glass. They had a 15 rebound advantage. Now, the second quarter belonged to George Yang. After knocking down four points to close the first quarter and keep the Cavaliers with a cushion, he was flawless. I have been watching Reacher. On Amazon Prime. Now, earm I don't want to spoil it, so earmuffs, if you have not heard any of this stuff yet, but I've been watching Reacher, and there's a scene in it where this uh, this bald guy actor that's in basically everything, playing either a cop or a gangster, well, he's trying to save a little girl from being abducted by some bad people. However, he gets shot, and he's vulnerable, and he's laying on the ground, and the bad guys come up, and they're about to finish him off, and they're standing over his body, when all of a sudden... A van comes out of nowhere and smashes him, kills the guy. Well, doesn't kill him, puts him in the ICU. Later, he gets murdered. Murdered by Reacher. Sorry for the spoiler again, but I warned you. My point is, minivan mowed down everybody on that Milwaukee Bucks second quarter unit. It does not matter. George's minivan could have been white. It could have been unmarked. It could have been parked in front of a school. It could smell like candy. You could hear children screaming inside of it. And still, nobody would have stopped it. And it wasn't just three-pointers. Yes, I know what the man's here for, but George has taken a lot of bullets because his efficiency from outside the arc has fallen. And just earlier today, I was in a debate about potential trades, and he came up, and I get why some people are disappointed. But I said then, and I'll say now, we can acknowledge George has some absolute stinkers. But are you telling me, when that man releases a shot, that you don't believe it's going in? Because I still do. And George clearly still believes he is taking more three-pointers every single month. Now, December was bad. He shot 30% on five attempts from outside the arc. But January, in this small six-game sample, he's taking even more. He's up to six attempts from outside the arc, and he is shooting 43%. Look at that. He had 41% in 15 games in November. He has 43% in just six games in January. Let's just pretend December never happened. Let me take it one step further. Let's remember the last Milwaukee game, the one we lost to the Bucks at the end of December. You might recall that George Yang went 0 for 6 in that game. Well, with tonight's performance, he's up to a respectable 5 for 12. You may recall he went 1 for 7 from the floor. Well, after tonight's game, he's 14 for 21. 66% average. That's fantastic. I like to think that the final game before a new year hit had George a little in the doldrums. Perhaps he was contemplating the fact that we all get older and die 
And yet another calendar has to be thrown in the trash, signifying life passing him by. And so he played an uninspired 14 minutes against the Bucks. But tonight, he made up for that. I can emotionally explain away every clunker. In the month of December, there was a four-game stretch where he went one for 11. Well, that was right after the anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Who can focus on basketball at a time like that? He has really turned the corner to a large degree. In his last six games, George is shooting 50% from outside the arc, and that's not on a small volume. 20 of 40. But maybe my favorite part about tonight was that George did not limit it to just outside looks. I hear a lot about all he does is shoot threes. No, sir. No, sir. He does much more. Now, if you didn't watch the game, I would encourage you to at least go back to the second quarter and watch from basically the 11-minute mark on because what George Yang did there was absolutely insane. First, he brought the ball up over half court. Sam Merrill ran towards him. He faked a dribble handoff, turned the corner, and drove to the rim for an easy layup. Came back down the other way, took a charge on Chris Middleton. Then, next time down the court, gets the ball in the right corner, pump fakes Jay Crowder, sidesteps, knocks down a three. This is all sequentially, mind you. After a Merrill basket on an offensive rebound, I realize the fact that I'm blowing past that is absolutely absurd. But after Merrill did that, it was back to the George Yang show. George again got the ball in the right corner, but instead of pulling for three, this time with Jay Crowder coming to close out on him, he decided to put his back to him, take him to the rim, and hit a turnaround bank shot. That gave the Cavaliers a 16-point lead. There is nothing this man does that he does quickly. Not his dribble penetration, not his back downs. Everything seemingly takes an hour and a half. But fuck is this man not impressive for a dude who looks like the soapbox derby car that comes in last fucking place. Dead effing last. Nyang's rhythm was slightly interrupted as we saw a beautiful play where CPJ hit Merrill on a cross-court pass that he fired one touch into Tristan in the lane. But from there, we got three more elbow threes from Yang. Two from the left side and one from the right elbow after Donnie drove into the lane and wrapped the ball around somebody on just an obscene pass. I don't even know who the guy in the lane was, but that made George 8-for-8, 4-for-4 from outside the arc, which concluded the 20-point first half that he accumulated. Jared Allen, what can you even say? The fact that he's the third guy I'm mentioning tonight, when we all know how I feel about him, in a game where he did 21-13 and 13 in just 25 minutes against a guy who has been talked about as one of the best defenders in the league. I was not remotely impressed by Brooke Lopez tonight. Can I get some respect paid to Hubie Brown? I'm not generally a giant Hubie Brown fan, but the man advocated for Jared Allen tonight. I hope you heard it on the broadcast. If not, I have that sound for you. I'm hoping that the people that are voting understand what this guy is doing. It's it's uh, it's just very nice to see and for him to do it today against Lopez and the Milwaukee Bucks, outstanding. I hope so too. In fact, I don't even really know why you're listening to this podcast right now, unless of course the national pods have not yet been released because there may be no finer day to listen to backtracking and backpedaling about how this Cavalier team is no better than last year than today. They absolutely should have seen tonight's game. It was on national television. They have no excuse to discredit Dean Wade, to discredit Isaac Okoro, and certainly not to discredit our franchise center. Jared Allen for Draymond Green. Get the fuck out of here.
we started to slow down a bit towards the end of the first. I thought the pace was amazing. And eventually, when Karis LeVert checked in, I mean, the Cavaliers were up by 17 points when Merrill got the first foul for the Cavaliers of the night. It was, there was three minutes left in the first quarter before we even committed a personal foul. They managed to go on a 12-2 run before the George Nyang show commenced. This game was not choppy at all. It was free-flowing, and that played right into the pace of the Cavaliers. We kept that momentum going basically until midway through the second quarter. Well, end of the first quarter, heading into the second quarter. Karras kind of mucked things up a little bit. They managed to close the lead someone he got in there. And if I recall correctly, I think Karras Levert missed his first six shots. But if there's a silver lining to that, it got Craig Porter Jr. into the game. And the second quarter was one of the most free-flowing, beautiful displays of shot-making I've ever seen, due largely to the aforementioned George Nyang. The second quarter belonged to him, and sure, you can shoot a little more freely when you're up by like 20 points, but everybody looked confident, looked crisp. The refs swallowed whistles. They did, and we have maybe we have Mike Brown to thank for that. I know we talked on a previous podcast, but Dame Lillard was baiting and working the refs the entire first half. It seemed like every other offensive possession was him driving to the left, being smothered by Isaac Okoro, falling away and throwing something up and expecting a whistle that didn't come until a short stretch there towards the end of the second quarter where he and campaign managed to get some fouls and some calls and get to the free throw stripe. For the most part, Dame Lillard came out looking for whistles that were simply not there. And the Cavaliers dominated in defensive effort, rebounding, fast break points, points in the paint. Every area, I mean, in a game in which these guys scored, what was it, 19 points in the second quarter, 22 points in the first quarter. It was an ass-kicking. Now, we've talked about Yang. I know we touched on Allen's dominance. Donovan Mitchell, as usual, I am just taking him for granted. That's not right. But we have to talk about Isaac Okoro because games aren't just one with offense. The free-flowing offense has been a hallmark of this stretch, but the defense as well continues to climb every game, and that is in large part because Isaac Okoro, with these injuries, has been forced into a much more high-profile situation. Tonight, he was tasked with shutting down Dame, and I'm sure you could all feel it. You may not realize to the extent that Isaac Okoro dominated that individual matchup, but consider this. I went back and I looked at every single one of the baskets Dame Lillard scored. I mean, he was fairly inefficient tonight, but he did make seven shots out of the 20 that he took. Well, nine of his attempts came against Isaac Okoro as his primary defender. Do you know how many of those he converted? Zero. That's right. Let's bring it back. Zero. Zero shots. He wasn't just 0 for 9. That included a turnover that led to a full-court run-out dunk by Max Struess. Isaac Okoro did not let Dame Lillard score on him tonight. This was perhaps one of the best individual defensive performances we have ever seen from Isaac Okoro against a truly elite scorer. Now, I have gone 19 minutes in this Fear the Fro podcast, stalling and waiting and clicking refresh repeatedly. I have been avoiding something. It's as if I have a white, unmarked van loaded up with lubed up children and I see a routine police traffic stop up ahead. No more avoiding, though. I can barrel ahead. This victory tonight, brace yourself for it, has made the Cavaliers the 10th best team in the NBA with the third best defense. Now, 
Keep this in mind. Before Evan Mobley went down, we were the eighth best defense. We have climbed five spots in the absence of one of the best defenders in the entire NBA. And offensively is perhaps even more impressive. Prior to Darius and Evan going down, we were the 25th ranked offense. As of the conclusion of tonight's absolute ass-kicking, we have the 19th best offense. And we have the 10th best net rating. We are climbing on both fronts. And with that, I tell you to soak it in, Cavalier fans, because the Hawks are up next. Now, what you're getting today from me is a two-part podcast. The tone is going to feel dramatically different. The first is celebrating a team which cannot be beaten and perhaps is the greatest team ever assembled, led by George Yang, blazing minivan house of fire. But the second half of this podcast is, of course, trying to blow this squad up because I go back to the audio mailbag and, as it were, we're talking about trades again. So if you want to just ride high and live on the glory of this victory, I would advise you to stop the podcast. If you want some trade talk, if you want some how could we get better, things aren't good enough talk, well, that will take place after this. And the subject happens to relate to one of the members of the team we're about to face in the Atlanta Hawks. So prepare yourself for a bumpy transition. The kind of bump a man might encounter if he had to quickly whip a van around at a routine traffic stop and during the middle of that, a child tumbled out and accidentally was struck by an automobile. That was a fucking work of art. I really had to do that one on the fly. But the point is, on to the audio mailbag. It is time to go back to CavsPod.com for a feature which I am pummeling you with about the head and face. It's the Talk to Bob feature, something which is picking up steam. My observations of those of you who have been early adopters of this mechanism to interact with the Fear the Fro podcast is that so far it is eliciting a lot of conversations about potential trades. That is natural as we head towards the February 8th trade deadline. And today brings us another iteration of that. Please leave a message. And now a message recorded and submitted to me at CavsPod.com. Hey, Bob, this is Brian. I'm a longtime listener. I love the show. Brian, I love you. Just wondering your thoughts on a rumored trade that sends out Mitchell in a three-way with the Knicks and the Hawks. Lands the Cavs to Jonte Murray and some picks are a second cheaper player while Mitchell ends up in New York. Murray's obviously not an explosive offensive player like Mitchell, but he's cheaper, under contract for a few more years, and plays good defense. Plus, it's possible he's a better fit with Garland. Thanks. Thank you, Brian. I get broken up, too, when I think about a trophy not being hoisted with Darius Garland alongside Donovan Mitchell. But let's do this thing, huh? Let's have a discussion. Let's talk about this Donovan Mitchell future, shall we? I have done it before on podcasts, but I want to reinforce and reiterate some points that I have made before. Please bear with me. I do not advocate capitulating to any fears that may exist about Donovan Mitchell and his desire to be here. Short of him saying, out of his own mouth, I have no intention of re-signing with the Cavaliers. If and when Donovan Mitchell proclaims that publicly, well, then fine. Then you have to make some tough decisions. But oh, I, I do not believe in acting out of some inferiority complex or fear that somebody is going to abandon you yet again because, for a very specific reason, it's not that I'm overly prideful of our own Cleveland Cavaliers, although I probably am, but in this case, it's merely business. 
I do not believe there is a situation in which Donovan Mitchell can command around $300 million. I mean, that number will vary depending on his all-NBA status as he heads into his next contract and his accolades. But still, I do not believe that there will be a situation where he can walk into enough open cap space from a team that he truly desires being a part of. All the teams we hear, the Knicks, the Nets, you know, the Heat, etc., they would have to jump through some hoops to be able to have the space available. And quite frankly, it requires the participation of the Cleveland Cavaliers. So yet again, I say the following. Have faith that if you want to give Donovan Mitchell a $300 million deal, that opportunity will in all likelihood be available for these Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, let's just say, though, we reached a point where Donovan Mitchell abandons professionalism, where he takes a very different approach than he's taken so far, and he says, fuck you, Bob, fuck you, Cavs fans. If you were on fire, I wouldn't piss on you to put it out. I'm leaving. Well, then we would have to shift, wouldn't we? Fuck him. But since we're talking about Murray, who will very possibly be moved this season, let's pretend that Donnie forces our hand between now and February 8th, okay? There are some things which would be beneficial in a Donovan Mitchell trade which happened to take place now. Uh, The first of those is that Donovan Mitchell is heading towards a massive, massive contract. Five years, $300 million. If we operate in an environment where we... We play this out and we say, fuck it. We think we can retain him. And then we reach that summer and he insists, no, I won't come here. Well, then then we're going to be looking at constructions of sign and trade deals where we have to take back enough salary to match a five year, 300 plus million dollar contract, something in the neighborhood of 60 million dollars a season. Fortunately, right now, for the next two years, Donovan Mitchell's hit to the cap is $33 million this season, $35 million next season. So balancing trades is a little easier if he happens to be moved in this deal that he's currently on. So let's go under that assumption. In a world where Donovan Mitchell leaves and what comes back is DeJounte Murray, some sort of leveling piece or young prospect and hopefully draft picks, I don't think it's the worst deal in the world because DeJounte Murray on a surface level has a lot of things going for him. One, I would say, is his contract. He is on a big deal. Yes, he makes a substantial amount of money, but he's also a substantial player. Last summer was a summer in which some massive extensions were signed, and DeJounte Murray's extension was four years for $120 million. Roughly, over the course of the next three to four seasons after this one, DeJounte Murray is locked up, making anywhere between $26 million, and in the final year of the deal, you know, four years removed, which is a player option, $32 million. Now, he also has a 15% trade kicker, so you need to factor that in. He would cost slightly more than that. 15% is roughly another $3 bucks a year. But for the sake of simplifying this analysis, let's just put it this way. DeJounte Murray will be under four years of Cavaliers control, or three if you're not counting this season, where he makes, on average, $30 million a season. Donovan Mitchell, if we want to retain him, we as Cavs fans need to prepare for the reality that he is going to command anywhere between 50 and $60 million on the cap moving forward. Now, a question all of us individually need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to deal with what comes along with giving Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland and Evan Mobley that type of money? Are you prepared for the sacrifices that come with that? 
And can we win in spite of those? The new rules that come with excessive spending in this current CBA make it very difficult to have more than two max players. We're going to have three, in all likelihood, if we keep this core together. The year to specifically consider is after we get past the summer of 2025. Now, let's say we make it to that summer and Donovan does extend. From that point on, we go from being a team right now who's dancing slightly below the luxury tax to a team which will barrel into the second apron in all likelihood. And I'm saying that under the assumption that Evan Mobley is going to be looking at a deal in the mid 200 millions when he extends potentially. Unless some of the shine comes off the apple and all of a sudden he goes from a guy who we just chalk it up that yeah, he's definitely going to be maxed to a guy on a more reasonable deal. But let's assume things go well because we're Cavalier fans. Obviously, we'd hope that would be the case. You have to answer for yourself. If DeJounte Murray can give you 75, 80% of what Donovan Mitchell gives you at one half of the price, is that something you could live with? Theoretically, his age, the multiple years of control, and his archetype all seem like pretty solid fallbacks for what is a disappointing future without Donovan Mitchell in it. Murray is only 26 years old. And the fact that he was known as a defensive player when he was in San Antonio. This was a guy who could block shots, who could ball hawk in passing lanes, and who seemingly could coexist in a backcourt where he's not the primary facilitator. Obviously, he's being forced to do that now with Trey Young, despite them not getting the results that we would be hoping for. I mean, he's six foot five, so he's bigger than the guards we have already. He also is a capable off-ball player. This season, he shot somewhere in the neighborhood of 140 threes in catch-and-shoot situations. Max Struess has shot almost twice that, but that would put him roughly third on this Cavalier roster behind a Max Struess and behind a George Yang. He's a capable three-point shooter from those corners. In those catch-and-shoot situations, he shoots roughly 38%. 39%. So it's not that DeJounte Murray doesn't have the ability to play off ball and on. I certainly think he does. And I think it's safe to say that he definitely would put us in a situation where it would put the ball back in the hands of Darius Garland more than we currently do with Donovan Mitchell as the other guard back there. So I think that could be beneficial. Now, there would absolutely be a benefit contractually. And this is something that I didn't really dive into on the last podcast, but Even though I assume most of you know this, I do want to reinforce it for those of you who are just more casual Cavs fans. What is the big deal about the aprons, you may be asking yourself? Well, if we max Evan Mobley and we max Donovan Mitchell, it's going to paint us into a very difficult position. Because if you cross into the second apron, which is roughly $17.5 million over whatever the luxury tax is, if you do that, well, then you lose a lot of flexibility to improve your roster. Specifically, one of the things that you no longer have access to is the taxpayer mid-level exception. That's not a life-changing exception. It's roughly $5 million. But for this Cavalier team specifically, they have already blown up their draft capital in acquiring Donovan Mitchell. They are not able to get better as a team through the draft, barring some of the magic that we've seen Kobe Altman pull off, the undrafted free agents, guys like Dean Wade and then Craig Porter Jr. Those have been huge finds, some second-round magic and Imani Bates. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's certainly more difficult when you no longer have access to the taxpayer mid-level exception. Another thing, 
You can't include cash in a trade. Buying a second-round pick, that's off the table. As the NBA heads towards an NBA draft where they do it on two separate days, there'll be more and more deals in the second round because teams will have longer to negotiate. This one is particularly scary. First-round pick, seven years out, are frozen. They become unable to be traded. We should be very cognizant about avoiding that second apron. Hell, when we can, we should be cognizant about avoiding the first apron because while those penalties aren't as punitive, they're still difficult. You no longer get to sign buyouts who made more than the mid-level exception. When trading guys, you don't have as much leeway. Things have to be within 110%, not 125%. And you can't acquire a player in a sign-and-trade if it keeps you above that apron. All those things get taken off the table with the first apron. So I know, pissing in the punch bowl here a little bit, but we can't just operate with complete financial imprudence. That brings me to a point I want to make about DeJounte Murray because I have heard people suggest that he's vastly overpaid, and I don't think that that is going to stand the test of time. I feel like people may end up feeling similar about his contract as we all do now about Jared Allen. I thought Jared Allen got more money than he probably needed to when we signed him. I was hoping to retain him around $15 million a year, but I look like an absolute asshole now complaining about that because he's earned that money and then some. And the rising costs of contracts makes his deal look more and more reasonable every season. I think the same is going to be said for DeJounte Murray. Look at the other guys who signed extensions in his range this past summer. You have Devin Vassell. You have Jaden McDaniels. You have guys who signed far bigger extensions. Jalen Brown, five years, 300-plus. That's over $60 million a season on average. Is he twice the player of DeJounte Murray? No. Kawhi Leonard just extended. In the middle of this season, he'll be getting $50 million a season, despite all the health issues, despite the age that he's had. DeMontis Sabonis, four years, $175 million this past summer. That's nearly $45 million a season. DeJounte Murray is on a big deal, but he might be falling into that sweet spot of, who is your third guy? Highly paid but not maxed third guy. The third max is going to be almost unsustainable in this new CBA. A lot of tough decisions about how to spend the money and a lot of humbling negotiations with people who want maxes but can't quite find it out there are going to be had. With DeJounte, the tough negotiations have already happened. Atlanta did that work for us in this hypothetical. Now, Brian suggested this as a three-way deal. Here's the thing I would say about the other assets that would be included. While Brian didn't elaborate on who the young guys are or what the compensation would be, I think there's a few things that we can just accept as fact. If Atlanta's participating, if Atlanta is sending out a talent the level of DeJounte Murray, one, they need to match money. The dead money's probably coming from New York side. Evan Fournier has been dying to be in an arrangement like this in every mock trade that's come up. He would largely balance DeJounte Murray this season alone because their salaries are similar until the extensions kick in. You may have to throw in a couple more pieces. Maybe they get back a young prospect. Maybe Quentin Grimes heads to Atlanta in this scenario. And we divvy up the draft assets between the Cavs and the Hawks. They get a couple firsts. We get a first, or we get a couple first, they get a first. All those things that the Knicks held on to in the OG trade could potentially come into play here. I don't want to get fixated on that. What I would say is that I think in a scenario where we deal Donovan Mitchell, 
uh, and we get back a DeJounte Murray, I'd be more accepting of the idea that we're not going to get some huge haul of draft assets and young prospects. There's going to be compromises on all those fronts. If we're able to salvage a return that brings us a former all-star in his prime, along with just a draft asset, a young prospect, I could talk myself into feeling okay. What we gave up for Donovan Mitchell, those returns are probably a thing of the past. It is so risky, and we're seeing teams all over the league suffering the consequences of this. The Nets dump all sorts of things for Harden. That blows up almost instantaneously. The Suns have traded virtually everything, and this core still may not quite get them there. There's us, and this is depressing to say, but we executed this trade prior to this new CBA, and this new CBA took a big fat shit over the idea that you could just keep spending if you believed in your core. It's very difficult to do so. The Warriors are living this hell right now. They have huge money tied up in aging, declining players. Klay Thompson, Chris Paul, Draymond Green. Now, they can be out from under Thompson and Chris Paul. But still, even with that, with Steph Curry making $56 million next year, they've got two guys in Wiggins and Draymond Green who become their de facto second and third option, at least from a financial standpoint. On a title team, do you want either of those guys in those roles? Probably not. You've got $50 million on guys who should probably be your fourth and fifth best players. And even letting Clay and CP3 walk. They're right at the salary cap. And while I'm on the subject of fourth and fifth options on a team making way too much money, please stop it. If you're somebody who has suggested DeAndre Hunter, stop it. If you're somebody who said, we should get Andrew Wiggins, let's move Karis LeVert, a better, cheaper player for a guy who's having the worst year of his NBA career. Hey, what should we send out to get Bruce Brown? Nothing. Fuck him. The Cavaliers are not bringing in a guy making $20 million a season to be, what, the fifth through seventh player on the roster? This is exactly why the Hawks are literally offering up everyone in trades, because they have done stupid thing after stupid thing. Capella, over $20 million. DeAndre Hunter, over $20 million. Oh, you're on our roster? Here, let me throw far too much money at you. That's the type of decisions that take a team from an Eastern Conference Finals, where they have young, promising players, into a rebuild in the span of a couple of seasons. There's a reason why those guys are the guys in rumors, because they come with a serious red flag. The Pacers gave Bruce Brown because they were under the cap and they needed to move that money forward. Bruce Brown was a placeholder. You know what it feels like? I bought a house where we had two bedrooms. I really only have ever needed one guest bedroom. But thinking that, okay, I'll hopefully we'll have a child here. They'll eventually need a bedroom. I should buy more house than I need and just park my money in it in hopes that it would appreciate and prove to be more valuable over time. Even though when I bought the house, the market was fucking horrible and I did question my decision at the time. And maybe it will blow up in my face. I kind of look at the Bruce Brown situation like that. Bruce Brown had an inflated market value, but situationally, he made sense because he ticked off necessary boxes for the Pacers. Short-term deal, team option on the second year that could then be used to target somebody they really wanted in a trade scenario because unrestricted free agency just didn't do it for him. Bruce Brown is not wholly unlike V. Stiviano. 
Donald Sterling's mistress in this situation. Now, she can go out to the world and tell everyone that she's a successful businesswoman. And and yes, an 80-year-old billionaire would uh, turn to a 20-something-year-old for advice on how to lead his life. Do you remember when people questioned her about why she recorded his phone conversations and she said she was his archivist? And that she would play tapes back to him because he forgot what he'd said? Did anybody believe that? It's bullshit! And listen. I'm not shaming sex workers. Use what you have available to you, okay? But she was a sex worker. Hell, I'd be a sex worker. If you got me $22 million and you said, listen, I'll act like I respect you and want you in public, but at the end of the day, you may have to suck it. Well, sign me up because I say, do it. Bruce Brown didn't even last a year there because he knew and they knew why they were willing to pay him $22 million. We'll give you more. We'll allow you to get back to unrestricted free agency, but in return, you have to meet us halfway and have this team option on the second year. It was similar to what the Knicks did when they signed Marcus Morris after a summer of striking out on better options. They wanted to get somebody on the payroll so they could be in play for somebody better. And in the case of the Pacers, they got Siakam. They got the guy that they wanted. And to that end, I think it's important to look at what happened with Bruce Brown the way unrestricted free agency played out just last summer for them, and realize that very well may be the justification for why the Pacers said, do it. Three first-round picks, fine. Pull the trigger. We don't even have to throw in prospects. Fuck yes. Now, sure, I have my doubts as to whether a guy who's basically 30 is going to be worth the money that they're about to have to tie up in him, but the alternative was that filthy, filthy whore, Bruce Brown. Whore? What a whore. There are only so many times you can belly up to the bar and spit game at all the beautiful ladies only to reach the end of the evening and be ashamed at what's at the other end of that dick, be it your hand or an uggo. Do I think Toronto got more than I expected them to? Well, sure. But if there's a situation where it makes sense that somebody would be willing to commit... The second of their max contracts, if you look at Halliburton as the other one, to Pascal Siakam, I think Indiana is a situation where it makes a lot of sense. They still have a very good core of young, cost-controlled guys. Miles Turner, reasonable deal. Aaron Neesmith, looks like a very good deal. They still have dudes on rookie contracts. Matherin, Jarris Walker, Andrew Nemhard. They have quality players. The Pacers sent back no prospect of value. All they sent was placeholder money. Yeah, I think he called her a whore. And those picks. And two of those picks are going to be very deep first-round picks. The Oklahoma City Thunder pick right now sits at 27th. The 2026 first, that's the real prize as far as... I'm, I think the Raptors did well to get back what they could. It was sounding like Siakam had no intention of taking anything less than a max, and it was sounding like the Raptors were not set on doing that. So for them to recoup this, it does seem like a win for them, but I think it's also a win for the Pacers. And to be wringing our hands over, well, they paid too much, they were bidding against themselves, maybe so. Yesterday, they didn't have Siakam, and they had Bruce Brown. And today, they got better. One four at a time. They're dangerous. I don't like it. That being said, we've got two superstar-level players of our own who will be returning soon enough and adding them to this surging roster, this surging offense. So I'll choose to focus on that. Control what you can control, as they say. And now, 
it's on to Atlanta to take on the Hawks and the very man who I spent the majority of this podcast talking about. Thank you to everybody who has listened to the Fear the Fro podcast. And thank you, Brian. I appreciate your question. And I have a question for you. Don't you find, seriously, though, that Korean whores are better than, say, a Thai whore? Kidding. That's not a quip. But you don't have to answer that, Brian. You're not the one on trial here. You didn't ask to be asked questions. I did. Did they ask if his mom's a prostitute? Don't get in the mud with me. Okay. I just have an obscene amount of whore sound bites for some reason. I'm a trash person. I appreciate you taking the time to go to CavsPod.com. I also want to thank each and every one of you who have left reviews and ratings, be it on Spotify or on Apple. We're going to hit 100 at some point in this season, maybe even before the All-Star break, depending on how many of you I haven't already saturated with this message. So, I'm Bob Schmidt. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. Bring on the Atlanta Hawks. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro It's over. podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.